Hello and welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. And today on the program, a chemist with a patent for turning methane into plastic. And the future of methanol as a cleaner alternative to gas. Find out what chemists are doing to shift us away from fossil fuels with Dr. Surya Prakash of the University of Southern California. And we have a podcast you can subscribe for free at planetwatchradio.com. So that's all one word, planetwatchradio.com. And if you want to get in touch with us or ask our guests a question, write to radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. But first, a short look at the top stories in science this week with our intern, Tommy Martin. Researchers from the Cleveland Clinic Learner Research Institute have discovered a way to reverse Alzheimer's in mice. By eliminating a gene that produces an enzyme called BACE1, researchers reserved the formation, or reversed the formation of amyloid plaques in the animal's brain. This plaque formation is what leads to memory loss in Alzheimer's patients by preventing nerve communication. Mice whose enzyme levels and plaque depleted showed improvement in their cognitive tests, but not to the levels seen in Alzheimer's-free mice. With five BACE1 inhibitors being tested in humans, researchers are cautiously hopeful, but warn that the human inhibitors are not likely to completely halt the formation of the plaque enzyme. Whatever they're having, I want some. We all do, right? We so want a cure for that disease, so it's great that there's some progress. It's been a long time since there's been any big breakthroughs on that story. Yeah. And I think, Joe, you had a story you wanted well, to share? I'm going to make short work of this one because uh, I don't have it with me, but uh, some big news just has been announced this week about uh, yet another negative effect of the kind of climate monkeying around that the human race is doing by overloading the atmosphere with too much carbon. Turns out we are threatening the oxygen budget of the oceans. And uh, so stay tuned. Next week we'll tell you more about this. But uh, heads up that oxygen, which we all depend on, of course, and we know that, you know, green plants make oxygen. Of course, the ocean is full of many small green plants, phytoplankton and so on. Uh, but uh, there's something wrong with oxygen going into and out of the ocean. So more later. More later, better. Well, <clears throat> more later, worse. I don't know. I don't know. You know, when we started this program over a year ago, we said, well, we just can't have all bad news. We have to talk about solutions. And we do. Um, but we also are not going to sugarcoat some of the news coming out of the scientific community. That was the other goal, which is to tell you the truth. Uh, if this is happening, you deserve to know what the latest is on what scientists are telling us about, you know, what's happening on the bigger picture, not just in your own community, but what's happening to the planet as we radically alter its atmosphere and do other things that are having a big impact. Um, and it ranges, really, from the kind of thing um, Michael McKay sent us, which was an article, a long, long, interesting article, which I read and want to read again, called The Darkness and the Needle, about from Emily Johnson, um, and she talks about, you know, how much time do we have left before we've kind of reached that point of no turning back from serious runaway climate change. And some people are saying two years and others are saying, well, they don't know. Um, so that's an uns unsure thing. But what if it was that short? You know, how would we behave differently? And 
what does it mean to have turned a corner, you know, we can't turn back from versus not. And, and her basic thesis is we may never know what positive impact we're having by reducing fossil fuels now. Uh, later down the line, we're doing it on a lot of faith because so much of this stuff, we just don't know if we're saving lots of species or just a few by reducing our carbon. Yeah, kind of like we might might hopefully be in the position someday of thanking ourselves for having been proactive. Uh, although, you know... We won't be looks, around to do that thanking. Yeah. It'll be our great, great, great grandkids if they look back and said, well, it's bad, but it's not as bad as it could have been if they hadn't done an X, Y, and Z. So let's hope we do very soon X, Y, and Z. I found this story to be interesting. Um, this is a lot about, you know, motivating people to do things. Um, as you might notice from a lot of the mailers you get and ads you get from environmental organizations, often they are playing on your guilt to get you to stop doing something or to do something. You know, aren't you ashamed of yourself for using so much fossil fuel or look at that plastic bag, you evil bad person. And it turns out that's not nearly as effective as stimulating people's pride. So Princeton University did a study, as they tend to do, to figure out what is it that motivates people more uh, to act? Because it's not just, oh, I'm feeling concerned. It's, I'm going to do something differently than what I'm doing. So according to this new study at Princeton, people are more motivated to help the planet and the environment through pride than through guilt. It's easy to feel guilty for using plastic bags or driving solo to a long trip to work every day without carpooling. But pride, for example, in using reusable bags or having a carpool is a lot stronger of a motivating factor. Especially this is aimed at those who do PR and advertising and convincing, right? Trying to change behavior. Participants were asked to think about either the pride they would feel after taking a pro-environmental action or the guilt they would feel for not doing so just before making a series of decisions related to the environment. Participants who were exposed to anticipation of pride consistently reported higher pro-environmental intentions than those exposed to anticipated guilt. <laughs> oh, you're going to make me feel like bad. So. Um, because so many environmental groups use guilt, like 90% of them still do, the study's authors suggested that these groups try to use a different emotion to motivate people. Can you think of an example of that in your own life, Joe? Curious. Well, probably a bunch of them. I'm just starting to think right now. You, you love <laughs> your electric car. Every time you see Joe, he's like, have you seen Sparky, my electric car? Well, now car? it's the Bolt. I call the it bolt. ARC, ARC yeah. Flash. <laughs> which anybody who's into elect electrical work knows that arc flash can be deadly, <laughs> but it's spectacular. <laughs> Hope it doesn't happen while you're driving. So you're very proud of your electric car and you probably um, tell a lot of people about it and maybe that will inspire them to get one themselves because of your excitement and pride. Yeah, it's what I refer to as the good parts. <laughs> I tell people about this show, hey, there's enough gloom and doom out there, okay? We all, we're all used to that. But hey, uh, you know, enough hand-wringing already. It's time for ass-kicking in, in the good sense. You know, let's, let's give ourselves a shot in the arm to really start doing the good stuff and focus on the good parts. Parts. We, we desperately need them and we need more of them. We need that to, to mushroom, <laughs> to, to flourish. And that so. brings around an interesting point. While we're waiting for our guest to call, I wanted to bring up that this story brought to mind, um, which is sort of this 
idea that you can inspire people individually to feel really good about recycling, you know, and bringing their reusable bag to the grocery store to avoid using plastics. But it's not ever going to be enough. All these individual collective actions do add up in a huge way. You know, if we all decided to just go solar, that would really be big. Um, but that would still only be our homes, right? Those individual decisions. Um, it wouldn't cover all of industry, for example, or power plants or driving cars. So we need government. We absolutely need our governments to do things that we alone or even as small groups could never do. We need them to enact legislation and you know, punish the perpetrators and reward the people doing good and get this huge problem solved in a more collective way because that's what governments at their best do for us. They are our collective voice. Yeah, there is that good old-fashioned American phrase, government of, by, and for the people. You know, these days, there's all this, it's all all the rage to give government a bad rap and say, you know, business does things better than government. Government can't do anything right. Well, hey, if the government is the people... You know, uh, so that is, as Rachel just said, at its best. Let's make it at its best then. Let's take back the government for ourselves, uh, you know, infuse it with our own wisdom, including science, the fruits of science on what's actually best for the world. And and a really, you know, good way to do that is to get involved in um, reducing the impact of corporate donations on politicians because capitalism tends to push us more toward a corporate model which is where we're at now where you have rex tillerson the former head of exxon running the state department how did that happen (laughs) or betsy devos a private you know educator who ran a private college uh, running the education department that's where that's just an example of how money in politics ends us up where we are i'm excited to talk to our guest um who is on the phone here because he has figured out an invention and um, he's also a very big proponent of shifting away from the kind of gasoline fuels for our cars and embracing an ethanol future. Methanol. 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 Sorry, you're Starts right. Starts with an M. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for, I'm glad you're there. Um, Surya Prakash, uh, PhD, is a professor and George A. and Judith A. Ola Nobel Laureate Chair in Hydrocarbon Chemistry. He is chairman of the Department of Chemistry and director of the Loker Hydrocarbon Research Institute at the University of Southern California. And we're going to bring him on the line right now, hopefully. Otherwise known as USC. Isn't that where the Rose Bowl is played, I believe? I believe it is. And uh, Dr. Prakash, how do we sound to you? Uh, Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How's the weather down there, by the way? Weather is pretty nice. It's probably around 68, you know, nice and sunny, mm-hmm. right? Nice. Okay. Well, we're expecting three inches of snow up in the mountains around here tonight, which I'm still disbelieving because the sun is shining, but supposedly a big old cold front supposed to slam us. Ice everywhere. You know, we need the snow anyway, right? Here in uh, somewhere in California, right? Yeah. Yeah, down to 1,000 feet. So it's a real big shock to us. Um, so <laughs> I introduced you um, by a lot of letters after your name. You have been an academic scientist for a long, long time. And I'm curious, um, what motivated you to go into this particular field that you're in? And um, just tell us a little bit about that and why it led to you writing a book about getting off of oil and gas. You know, I'm basically a chemist. And when I was a high school kid, I was, uh, and I had a very good chemistry teacher. And uh, of course, I was fascinated with fireworks. And that's how I got into chemistry. 
And uh, then I realized in college that chemistry can be considered as a central science because everything around us is related to chemistry. So, you know, all the things around in this, you know, this uh, world is uh, made of chemicals. So that was my fascination. And also, you know, when, we, when I came to University of Southern California in 1977 with a colleague of mine, Actually, my mentor of mine, George Ola, who got a Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1994, we created an institute dedicated to hydrocarbon chemistry. Because at that time, uh, Carter was the president, and we had some kind of an oil embargo, the Iranian Revolution. Mm -hmm. And USC was interested to come up with solutions for our uh, fossil fuel and hydrocarbon conundrum. And at that point, it wasn't really um, global warming that was the big scare. It was uh, that the U.S. would simply not get access to those fuels from exactly. other countries. Exactly. And America was, you know, had a lot of uh, coal. And the idea was how we can convert coal into liquids. So we can put it in a, you know, gas tank or a diesel tank and run our internal combustion engine. That was the idea at the time. But we early on realized that one of the simplest hydrocarbon that people could work with was natural gas or methane, then we realized that with one carbon-based chemistry, we can solve, you know, all kinds of problems. So that's, that's what our institute has been doing this kind of work for almost uh, 30, 35 years. So let's, let's talk about methane, the basis for our conversation today. Um, a lot of people know it because of its eggy smell. Um, it comes out of landfills in dangerous amounts. And um, a lot of us who follow global warming and worry about climate change see it as one of the most potent greenhouse gases that can cause the most trouble. Um, and you also say it could be a solution to some of the problems created by fossil fuels. Is there a benefit to using your methodology um, to make fuel out of methane that will help mitigate global warming is there a connection yeah. there? hey surya hey, surya before you go i just wanted to say you you mentioned the term the one carbon chemistry meaning he means uh, compounds that have only one carbon yeah, atom mo in the molecule so for instance methane ch4 has just that yeah. one carbon yes it's a one carbon molecule it's uh, methane ch4 absolutely right and also just to in a correction methane pure methane has no smell Okay. The smell smell comes because of other things, you know, the natural gas and shale gas. And Hydrogen like sulfide, I guess. Hydrogen sulfur-based compounds. Okay. That's what you, yeah. but, but it is indeed one of the more potent green, green, greenhouse yes. gases. And what attracted me to originally call you um, was a paper that came out recently in Science Daily saying you have patented a way to turn methane into some sort of plastic, an olefin. Yes, yeah, we can convert methane directly into, you know, two gases which are used in petrochemical industry to make plastics. They're called ethylene and propylene. And ethylene is used to make, you know, your milk bottles, milk jugs and things like that, polyethylene. And polypropylene is used to make all kinds of, you know, designer plastics and things like that. It's produced in large quantities. So ethylene is a two-carbon-based molecule and propylene is a three-carbon-based molecule. So we can take a one carbon molecule and build it to make a two carbon uh, chemical feedstock or a three carbon chemical feedstock. That's what our paper attracted, you know, uh, in the Science Daily it was discussed, I think. That's and the impact of that would be that you wouldn't have to rely on fossil fuels for making plastics. Is that uh, correct? Yeah, yes. Plastics are generally made with using cracking oil. 
and uh, you know oil uh, is uh, based on fossil fuel even methane is can be considered as fossil fuel too but uh, fortunately we have uh, plenty of methane to go around especially in america we have a lot of shale gas bonanza actually and uh, methane can be converted to these uh, useful uh, feedstocks and ultimately you know you can make some useful material let me ask you a question right there uh, dr prakash um <laughs> what you just said about we got lots of methane well yeah that comes from fracking we got yeah. problems with that we had a show on that a very good one back in may but um getting it out of the atmosphere directly uh, i mean we do have an excess of methane in the atmosphere and a growing alarmingly growing excess of methane have you all got to the point where we can efficiently you know uh, not too expensively extract methane directly from the atmosphere to make some of this useful stuff you're talking about uh, unfortunately not it's very difficult to take methane out of the atmosphere so what people do is when they do fracking when they're not using that methane they just flare it because uh, they, when you flare methane or burn it combust methane uh, with a flame you basically make CO2 carbon dioxide and water and carbon di carbon dioxide is ca is uh, less global warming than the methane itself so that is the solution people use it's called flaring of uh, gas natural gas that that's the solution and uh, so you know th this is this is the problem so methane cannot be extracted that easily from the atmosphere when you say Although flaring energy, um, could they use the flaring as energy or it seems like a wasted thing when they're just burning, it is it's actually it's wasted you are absolutely right and uh, so the, the thing is when you flare methane you basically make carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide is considered a a potent greenhouse gas. In fact, 65% of the global warming is related to the carbon dioxide that is, you know, coming because of anthropogenic activities. But there is a way to capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. That's what my institute has pioneered many processes also. Do you want to tell us more about how you're doing that? Because that's of also interest to us here. We are always looking, Joe, I think at every show says, as soon as we figure out a way to really pull a lot of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, we will have a way to reduce the impact of global warming faster than, or as fast perhaps, as uh, we are causing it to be worse, if that makes any sense at all. Yes. In fact, uh, you know, we are, our institute has developed materials which are what is called fume silica. Base silica is basically some, one, some kind of sand, very high, you know, particle size uh, sand. And using some organic compounds called amines, polyethylene amines or amines, we can capture carbon dioxide directly from the air at ambient temperature. And around 60 degrees, we can release it. And uh, this is a solution to capture carbon dioxide, not only from point sources like coal burning power plant chimneys or uh, breweries where CO2 is produced. We can directly capture from point sources, including air. Did you say breweries like beer? <laughs> yeah, when they when they make when they you know ferment sugar and all that to make alcohol, one of the byproduct is uh, pure carbon dioxide. Oh no! Another thing yes. to to crush our hopes <laughs> yes, for being a good good citizen. Except he's got a good use for that stuff. He said. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and also remember, you know the the global the CO two greenhouse problem, you know, started coming when mankind started doing. Uh, agriculture and animal husbandry. So <laughs> land use, agriculture also produces quite a bit of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. So all human, yeah. Go ahead. All human activities, actually, 
you know, creates, uh, you know, greenhouse gases. And CO2 is one of the, you know, most, you know, potent. And there's, we are spewing out around, I think, 36 or 38 billion tons of carbon dioxide, which is all man-made or man-caused. Every year. Yeah. Every year into atmosphere. And half of them ends up in the ocean and also leads to what is called ocean acidification, making soda water. And the acidic ocean also destroys the coral reefs, which is limestone, so you produce more carbon dioxide. So it's like a domino effect. Right, we have that, what they call a runaway feedback loop that starts to happen where one thing makes things worse, like when the uh, color of the oceans in the Arctic turn more blue than white, um, doesn't reflect heat away as well. Exactly. Yeah. So did you say, uh, a little while ago, did you say fused silica? You said something silica. Yeah, fused silica. Fused silica is a commercial product made by chemical companies. It's a high surface area silica. And it, you know, it's called, you know, it, it's manufactured, it's probably one to two dollars a kilo. So it's not that expensive. It's made in millions of tons for all kinds of purposes in industry. And how did that fit into our discussion here again? A few silica with polyethylene amine, we can make materials which can capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere at room temperature. Ah, okay. And, and my follow-up question to that is, um, you know, Joe is always dreaming of this idea that massive quali- quantities of carbon dioxide would be removed eventually by some process. Um, is this process you're d- talking about with silica and amines going to be enough to actually show, move the dial at all on the problem? Oh, sure, it can, you know, but it, you have to do this on massive scale because the problem is a massive problem. Mm-hmm. But we have to start somewhere. But what my point as a chemist is, you know, we all use these fossil fuels to make carbon-based products. And uh, what I tell my students is all living beings on Earth are made of carbon. So we cannot, di- you know, divest from carbon. We need to manage carbon. Nature manages carbon through photosynthesis, but we have kind of, you know, imbalanced nature's processes with all this burning of fossil fuels. And the way I define fossil fuels is fossil fuels are all fossilized sunshine. If you understand that, we don't have an energy problem on Earth per se. We have an energy storage and energy carrier problem. All fossil fuels, you know, once it is gone, it's gone. But still humans need carbon-based products. How are we going to do that? So the idea is take carbon dioxide, which is sent to the atmosphere, you know, it's coming out of chimneys, capture it and use sun's energy or wind energy or geothermal energy where you can make electricity and electricity you can use to split water by a process called electrolysis and make hydrogen and hydrogen and carbon dioxide can be combined to make a very simple molecule called methanol or methyl alcohol the wood alcohol and methanol could be used to run your existing internal combustion engines diesel engines and you can even run fuel cells. And from methanol, you can also make ethylene and propylene to make petrochemical products. If you just joined us, um, we're speaking with Dr. Prakash from the University of Southern California. He is the head of the chemistry department there. And we're talking about methane and using it for even running cars. And and methanol as a product. And uh, we should say the, well, two things. First, I want to say the chemical formula for methanol. (laughs) It's CH3OH. 
uh, or you could just say CH4O, but for various chemistry reasons, they write it CH3OH. <laughs> and uh, by the way, if you drink the stuff, unlike ethanol, uh, I mean, ethanol, drinking it, too much of it, you know, can kind of screw you up. But uh, if you drink methanol, you go blind or worse. Yes. <laughs> so you're not supposed you're to drink <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. Methanol is toxic if you drink it. and uh, But uh, methanol is uh, found naturally in uh, many juices as well as in winemaking processes. You have uh, methanol. And the antidote for methanol poisoning is drinking ethanol. Really? <laughs> so when you and and uh, of course, but methanol is very safe to environment in the sense it's uh, destroyed in the environment pretty fast. It's a plant growth promoter. All the bacteria can use methanol as, you know, one carbon uh, fuel it can consume. And also methanol is used already in copious amounts in uh, wastewater treatment for denitrification of uh, waste, wastewater streams. It's used, in lar you know, in large quantities. And methanol is, uh, you know, if it is properly handled, you have no problem. And your windshield wiper fluid in your car is already 70% methanol. Oh, I was yeah, wondering also, about that. Interesting. And speaking of cars, <laughs> race cars uh, are typically run on methanol. And one interesting fact about it is it burns so clean that you can't see the flame. So in that respect, it's kind of dangerous. So they uh, they sprinkle in some stuff that makes it visible to, to make it exactly. safer. Exactly. But, but having said that, I, no, the flame is uh, colorless, uh, slightly blue, but... Methanol fires can be extinguished with uh, water, whereas gasoline fi uh, fires you need foam. Interesting. So that is the reason. That is the reason why they use uh, methanol in race cars. And methanol also has a very high octane number. It gives you more power or torque in uh, IC engines and compression stroke engines. So methanol is a very good fuel for that. And also the emissions from methanol is very clean. You don't make much NOx, nitrogen oxides. There is no sulfur, so you don't make any sulfur oxide, and also you don't make any particulate matter, like soot, which is uh, pretty bad. You know, so you can avoid a lot of pollution problems by switching to methanol as a fuel. Where can I get some at a gas station? <laughs> uh, you know, in fact, the late 1880s, California and Los Angeles County, they ran 10,000 vehicles on M85 fuel, 85% methanol and 15% gasoline, and it is a success because we had a small problem. Oh, I remember. But even, <laughs> eventually, I think the oil companies didn't like the idea and it didn't go anywhere. Oh, so they didn't like that success that methanol yes. fuel was having. Because it was competition. They didn't just, yes. just diversify into methanol. They crushed <laughs> methanol so they could keep selling By the way, dirty if, gas. If you uh, want to email us and our guest uh, question or comment, uh, get in touch with us right now at Radio Planet Watch at gmail.com. So that's all one word, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And I'm Rachel Goodman with Joe Jordan and intern Tommy Martin. And he's got a couple questions. Someone pre-emailed us that uh, he was going to ask one of you, if you don't mind, Dr. Prakash. Yes. Hi, Dr. Prakash. A um, couple of questions here. What is the current cost and efficiency of direct methanol fuel cells and their prospects for improvement? And as you know, methanol fuel cells basically they 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 use uh, noble metals as catalysts. We use platinum and platinum ruthenium. And uh, at the present loading of these catalysts, the costs are around four to five thousand dollars a kilowatt. It's expensive. 
Wow. And what is a fuel cell anyway? Is that similar to something you'd run a car on or? Uh, no, fuel cell is like a battery. Oh. It's a chemical battery okay. where methanol and air reaction is used to produce electricity directly instead of heat. So they've invented and it, but it's really not cost effective right now. It's compared not cost effective, but it's, it's used already in the military applications for portable uh, fuel cells where they don't want to make any thermal signature. Huh. You can produce methanol and air batteries can run at room temperature around 40% efficiency and make electricity on demand. That's what that extra $30 billion in the budget this year went for. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next question is, in the current state of technology, is it cheaper to use a methanol reformer to generate hydrogen to be fed into a hydrogen fuel cell? Wait a minute, that is a very technical question. First, we're going to have to define what he's asking. <laughs> what does that mean in plain English? Because this person who's asking, I think is a very technical-minded person. Hey, sure, he's asked, what he's doing is, for example, you know, hydrogen fuel cells are very well known. You can make hydrogen and oxygen reaction in a chemical battery to make electricity directly. In fact, there are cars running, you know, on the streets like Toyota Mirai, which basically runs on hydrogen oxygen fuel cells. Now, can you make this hydrogen on board using methanol as a starting material to make, uh, liberate hydrogen out of methanol? In fact, that is being done. And in fact, there are companies in, uh, in Europe, as well as in China, where they're using this uh, reforming of methanol to produce hydrogen on board. The hydrogen is fed to a fuel cell, and the fuel cell makes the electricity, which trickle charges a battery, and the battery runs the, and, uh, the, you know, the electric motor. So is these it, things are happening. Is that happening cheaper? Is that it's not cheaper, but the thing is, you can do what's called range extension. For example, with an electric car, you can make probably 150 miles with the existing battery technology. But if you couple this with a fuel cell to charge it, it can maybe go to 1,000 miles or 1,500 miles, and depending on how much methanol you can carry. And hydrogen carrying is hydrogen is a gas. You know, it's, you, uh, you have to put it under high pressure, and it's dangerous. So carrying hydrogen is uh, difficult. So you can take a liquid like methanol and make hydrogen on board. In fact, we also work in this area. We have developed a lot of processes how to liberate hydrogen out of methanol. Free the hydrogen. It's a new movement. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, you're from India, um, I yes. suspect. Um, there has been some really... Uh, disheartening news out of Delhi and places like that where the air is just unbreathable. People are getting very sick. Um, how come if this is available, some of these places that are really in a bind, because I think they're using cheap diesel, haven't um, just made a rule that people have to switch to something like methanol? Yes. In fact, it's, you know, in fact let, let me tell you, there's a lot of progress in the so-called this methanol user, methanol economy. And one country which started doing this early on is uh, China. China, now 10% of transportation fuels is based on methanol. And uh, because they have a huge smog issues in big cities, so they have 180,000 vehicles who are run, which are running on 100% methanol already. There is a company called Geely which makes this methanol uh, vehicles. And Sweden is converting methanol, you know, using methanol in ships. You know, ship engines are very polluting. They use the very heavy diesel or bunker oil and uh, the emissions are very dirty. So they're switching into methanol as a fuel. And the state of Israel is also blending methanol with gasoline. And the country like India, where I come from, they decided last December, they made a, you know, in their Indian Gazette, the government Gazette, they made a notification 
that they're going to blend 15% methanol with gasoline. So the M15 will be utilized in many parts of India. The impetus for that is they can reduce, you know, the pollution because Indian cities are highly polluted. Yes, and will that make the cost of gasoline go up? Because one of the analyses I heard about Delhi's air was that people were just buying really bad gas diesel and oh, sticking sure. it in their vehicles, and that was one of the three things. The other was agricultural burning that exactly, people Exactly, because, uh, you know, the slash and burn kind of a thing, in fact, when they grow sugarcane, the best way to put the nutrients back to the soil is to burn whatever is left and all the inorganic, uh, you know, uh, chemicals go back to the soil and the soil is enriched and that's what is creating uh, the problem in Delhi. Delhi is like Los Angeles. There is not much inversion, mm -hmm. so the pollution stays there. Mm -hmm. But uh, India, in, uh, luckily for India, the Supreme Court of India, the judiciary is pretty proactive and they're putting a lot of, you know, uh, laws into books. Right before and you called, we were talking about governments and how they can do things. They can actually do things that benefit the whole population, not just a few people. And we were being very frustrated about our own, but it's nice to see that when there's a big crisis, there are governments saying, we're going to do this and we're going to do it right now so that there's an immediate result. Uh, pollution seems like the kind of thing, and I've, we saw it in Los Angeles, you can impact. And it has a huge benefit to people's health. So I'm happy to hear that Delhi is doing that and the Indian... Yeah, Delhi and Bangalore and also one other thing in India, the low-hanging fruit is, you know, in India uh, people cook with what is called kerosene and kerosene is also you know, it's like almost like uh, somewhere between gasoline and diesel, it, it makes black soot and people cook with it in huts and all that so what the Indian government is going to do, they're going to provide what's called clean cook stoves, which are methanol stoves which gives you a very beautiful blue flame and very little pollution, and it's safer. So India is also embarking on helping poor people to cook with methanol. And oh. China is already cooking with methanol big time in restaurants and other places, because China used to also burn coal to produce, you know, heat and, you know, cooking, you know, cook with it, yeah. So, so there are big. methanol stoves, that's what you yeah. were just saying. Yeah. Do we see many of those around here? I don't know no, if I've I, ever seen actually, one. I, I have two in my office. You know, I had a Swedish <laughs> company which is making it. And also, it, you know, ethanol stuffs are available. The same stuff you could use for methanol too. Uh -huh. Bioethanol stuff. Yeah. yeah, ethanol, by the way, we should say the chemical formula for ethanol, which is not the thing we've been talking about. Ethanol is the, you know, the hooch. It's the stuff you drink. It's C2H5OH. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it has a carbon-carbon bond, and the ethanol is basically made from bio-origin, like sugars and starch and things like that. And biofuels, in my opinion, is not a great idea in the long run. Although methanol is uh, technically can be a biofuel, right? I mean, the name wood alcohol, it used to be actually made from wood. So, exactly. So. You, can, you can take any non-edible biomass, gasify it, and make methanol. Whereas, unfortunately, ethanol is, easy, you know, is, is generally made from food, subsidy, you know, food sources like sugar, uh, you know, corn, or wheat, and things of that nature. So if you use non-edible biomass, to make uh, ethanol or methanol, it's fine. But now, to use food to make methanol or ethanol is not good. <laughs> uh -huh. Now, here's an interesting question. Sometime we'll probably have a show on ethanol. And there's yes. a whole lot of people, uh, you know, pretty knowledgeable people in the world who are really into renewable energy who are really kind of anti 
ethanol, and I have been very intrigued about ethanol for years, but something that Dr. Prakash told Rachel and me on the phone as we were getting ready for this interview uh, this past week was that, well, one problem with ethanol, and I want to kind of just get it out there right now, how, how immutable is this problem? You said since it's a two-carbon molecule, you cannot avoid some soot yeah. when you burn it. Uh, how how bad a problem is that? I mean, is it just it a is, No, with, with ethanol, ethanol also burns clean. You know, if it is properly, the air-ethanol ratios is very good. You make very little soot. But since you have a carbon-carbon bond, there is more propensity of making soot. Whereas if you have one carbon alcohol, there is no chance of making soot, very little soot. And I think that what you said earlier is the criticism I hear about ethanol, which is it you're making it from food, and we should be eating that food and using that land for feeding humans instead of growing our fuel. <laughs> it really takes a lot of car. It takes a lot of inputs, often fossil fuel inputs, to create all these miles of exactly. corn. Exactly. You know, if you have to look at the life cycle analysis, currently we're using about eighty-five to ninety billion million barrels of oil a day. A barrel is uh, 42 gallons or 160 liters. Did you say and million to, million barrels? Yeah. Yes, 85 to 90 million barrels of oil. A day? day. And we are using 22 million tons of coal and 10 billion meter cubes of natural gas every day. It doesn't really come out ahead. And we <laughs> is the United States? It's almost 20% of it is the uh, United States. Wow. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and the thing is, you know, you cannot supplant all those fossil fuels with biofuels. And also nature, when it makes all these products, nature is not very efficient because it requires nurture. Nature is very specific. So we need to be cognizant of that. So the only way we are going to make, uh, you know, uh, chemical fuels and products in the future is through chemistry, not through nature. (laughs) We have a couple more questions um, from a listener that Tommy's going to read. Um, what are your thoughts about hydrocarbon biofuels? And what are they? You know, I, yeah, <laughs> hydrocarbon biofuels is basically uh, for taking, uh, you know, uh, for example, starch or cellulosic material and converting into such things as butanol or propanol and things like that. So what you do is you break up the, you know, cellulosic material, remove the oxygen, and make, uh, you know, hydrocarbon-based products. But again, there are many steps involved in this. If you make some value-added products like some, uh, you know, special chemical or something, it is fine. But ultimately, ultimately to combust it or burn it in a, you know, for example, an engine, I think it's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's, that's a really interesting question and a great answer to it. Um, and if you just joined us, this is Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan, and we're talking to Dr. Surya Prakash from the University of Southern California, who is the chair of the chemistry department there, and we're talking about how we power the world without killing the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, i got to ask my holy grail question of you, and we did talk a little bit about this a few days ago on the phone. Uh, as Rachel says, I'm always... Uh, you know, blabbing on about how we've got to remove massive amounts of carbon from the atmosphere in addition to just zeroing out our emissions by going solar and wind and, and all things good. Uh, and I was asking you, well, is this stuff that we're talking about now, does this have any... Well, right, I guess <laughs> right now, obviously, it's not playing a significant role in getting you know, climatically significant quantities of carbon. We are, we are not. But does it have the potential? Uh, could sure, you know, like, let's say like, you know, 600 years from now, 
when we have burnt all our enough we, i don't think we're going to run out of all fossil fuels still there will be some left but it'll be very expensive to get it out of the ground which is very deep you know into the earth's crust or something so what is going to happen is mankind would need to make fuels and feedstocks the beauty of what we are talking about so called methanol economy if we can recycle carbon dioxide to make fuels and chemical feedstocks that we can use the existing infrastructure you were in you know, 1968 you know Chevy Impala and happily run on methanol with very little modification is that what you drive so, <laughs> down there in southern I, I california drive a, i i i drive a prius which is if you look at the life cycle analysis of a prius we already have put a lot of carbon footprint to manufacture it right so you know all these electric vehicles people talk about is it's going to cost societies an arm of amount of money and also we are going to put mark more carbon footprint into the atmosphere Joe, your EV? pride in your electric car may have just gone down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because electric vehicles, you know, the thing is the battery technology, the lithium-ion batteries and all, just to, and also the electric motors which have rare earth metals and all that, you know, magnets. You know, to extract this sort of earth is cost a lot of, you know, heat, and the heat comes from burning fossil fuels. So we need to be cognizant of all that. I guess that just means I need to drive a whole lot to get... our <laughs> environments worth out of the embodied energy costs now there's some twisted logic <laughs> i need to run my solar system all night long um yeah you know, so you know basically this this is the issue you already mentioned to make ethanol you know you burn quite a bit of you know natural gas to get the heat and separation so you have to look at the whole life cycle and the global warming problem is a very serious problem for humankind i don't think we'll be able to solve it but we can slowly mitigate some you know bad effects of that and also we have to have some engineering solutions to tackle it you know mm. that's the only way we're going to you know do that because the train has left the st- station and we have already ruined putting so much of uh, extra carbon into atmosphere mm, what's that train running on well let's <laughs> see tommy has another question or two for you here Yeah, I've got a question. I was just wondering uh you said 10% of China is using yeah. those cars that use the methanol. Yeah, it's was... various various ways, you know, they're using for uh, diesel trucks, you know, they're 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 they methanol trucks now. There's methanol blended with gasoline all the way from M5 to M100. In Shanghai alone, uh, I met a guy, I was in China last November. He was running a taxi fleet of eighteen thousand taxis running on hundred percent methanol. Wow! Wow! So you can just get methanol at a gas station. Just oh yeah, in okay. methanol is dispensed in about six provinces in China, and the methanol they manufacture in China is made from coal, like coal gasification. So they are not really worried about carbon footprint. You know, and when you take coal and make methanol, you have significant carbon footprint. But for them. Methanol is a saver in the sense that they're using uh, their own, you know, indigenous uh, feedstock to make uh, fuel, and also they are uh, trying to diminish some of the, you know, harmful effects of uh, pollution. Hmm. Pollution is their major problem, and also use, China uses methanol as a feedstock to make ethylene and propylene. They manufacture 17 million tons of these, uh, you know, precursors to make plastics mm-hmm. using methanol as a starting material. Okay, well, that's encouraging. Uh, now, I, I'm going to ask you a question to which I think the answer is yes. The third edition is coming out soon. <laughs> is there a book yeah. where people can read about this stuff that's kind of written at the layperson's level? Yeah, you know, the book is uh, titled "Beyond Oil and Gas: The Methanol Economy." 
The third edition is going to be published by Wiley VCH. It's a technical publisher located in Germany. And the authors are my colleague and my late uh, colleague and Nobel Prize winner, Jarjola, and my existing scientist in my group, Alain Gopert, and myself, Surya Prakash. This uh, third edition will be published in, uh, by July, but the second edition is still available on Amazon. And this book was translated into five languages, Russian, Chinese, Hungarian, Swedish, and Japanese. So it's uh, called Beyond Oil and Gas, and then subtitle The, the Methanol Economy. And yes. uh, Ola, I guess the lead author maybe, uh, yes. George Ola, that's O-L-A-H. Yes. And uh, yeah, so it, it sounds though, if Wiley's publishing, it's it's probably kind of like a textbook, uh, not not super no, layperson. It, it is written at a twelfth grade level. Oh, tenth to twelfth, did you say? Yeah, twelfth grade level. Twelfth grade level, perfect. Yeah. Great. Many of our listeners are within striking distance of or beyond that level. Uh, so, yeah. I, and I've heard, you know, in the past that it, most. American scientific literacy level is in high school, around there. That's sort of when a lot of people stopped learning and forgot a lot of what they did learn in science class or maybe freshman college, but you know that's if you go to college. So that may be why we're struggling with some of these bigger issues when we're trying to talk about global warming and people just don't have the scientific literacy to understand the basic scientific method and how consensus is reached around big things like global warming. It isn't that often you do have scientific consensus about anything. So the fact that there seems to be a pretty strong consensus among climate scientists anyway about the fact that our planet is warming and humans are to blame and it is about carbon dioxide and methane, um, that seems to go back to that science literacy piece. And we're trying to help that every day here on Planet Watch, and we appreciate that your book is aimed at an audience that will be able to understand what you're talking about when you talk about methanol. Yeah, and we'll look forward to you uh, coming up the coast sometime and uh, gracing our community with a talk uh, aimed at maybe yeah. you can do some technical talks up at the university, and then maybe you can do some talks for the general community. I, I can demonstrate my field self. Yes. Cool. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you know, uh, we, we have just a few minutes left in the hour, and i got to do my usual oddball stuff segment, which you're welcome to stay tuned into, or you can catch it on the archive later. Uh, but we sure do want to thank you for uh, coming on with us and uh, doing at least the beginnings of a, a very important and interesting discussion on, on this. Uh, so... Uh, Thank you for being with us here on Planet Watch, Dr. Thank you. Prakash. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, have right. a great rest of the weekend, the long weekend. <laughs> yeah, thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, well, that was that was great. And uh, if if my my relatives are in the studio lurking about somewhere, if you can hear me, if you are in earshot, come back in now. We need you for the last few minutes of the show. You're going to quiz them and make them uh, <laughs> well, answer they, science. Well, uh, my niece questions. from Virginia, Leah. Uh, you all heard my sister on Christmas Eve, along with my brother. My my sister's uh, daughter Leah is here with her husband Anthony, who teaches sociology at Cal State Fullerton, uh, and they both. Have already told me they don't want to say anything on the air really but i still want them in here for the last few minutes uh, just i need to see their uh, 
glowing countenances. So that's a summons. Get those folks in here there, Griffin. Thank you. Um, so now... Here they come. Uh, here you we go. You can't see them on the radio, you, but they're very nice looking yes, people. Can. Yeah, here they come. That's the beauty of radio. I, I think <laughs> that they say you have a face that's made for radio. I think there was something we said earlier in the show. Some of the banter that Rachel and I had, I think, would have appealed to Anthony. I forget what it was now, but it was something pretty important to sociology. That anyway. Was, that goes back to that mice and Alzheimer's study, I think. <laughs> oh, the, the government. Maybe it was the government it's thing about forgetting something. things. Okay, yeah. onward. Yes, yes, yes. Joe's so, segment. Some quick astro stuff, because we only got about uh, six, five, five minutes left. Um, it's Venus Day. Well, actually, it already happened this past week. For the first time in more than three months, I saw Venus after it had passed behind, far behind the sun, and it is emerging now again more and more and more brightly into the evening sky. So if you can get thee to any semblance of a decent western horizon on reasonably clear weather in the next coming days uh, we now have a new evening star venus has moved from being a morning star where it would come up before the sun and was west of the sun now it's it's going down behind the sun and is east of the sun and every evening it's a little higher and a little brighter up and to the left of where the sun went down and uh, just for this next evening or two, you'll also see in the same, well, above Venus, but you'll see this beautiful crescent moon, the Cheshire Cat Grin, which is my favorite phase of the moon because it's both beautiful and interesting. The reason it's interesting is because not only do you see that crescent part, but you can dimly make out the silvery ghostly glow of the circle of the entire dark side of the moon. And we've talked about this, I'm pretty sure, on one of our previous 57 or so shows, but I'll just leave it as a riddle to you to think about why is it that you can see that dark side of the moon with that ghostly glow? So look for that, though, first of all, tonight or maybe even tomorrow night, but tonight it'll be better because the thinner the moon is, the better you see that part. And finally, if you're an early riser, uh, you know, sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not, <laughs> got up before dawn, uh, yesterday, I think it was, rode my bicycle up and down the hill to the university through the glorious great meadow just for some exercise. And lo and behold, all through the southern and southeastern sky, I saw this beautifully arrayed string of pearls. Three bright planets lined up along the edge of the plane of the solar system. Jupiter being the brightest and whitest, and it's just about due south at sun, uh, well, before sunrise uh, in, in the pre-dawn sky. And then to its left, a little bit down, and to the left is um, orangish Mars, right near the bright star Antares in the heart of the Scorpion. And then to its left and down is whitish Saturn atop the lid of the teapot in Sagittarius, the archer. <laughs> What's an archer doing with a teapot? Well, it's one of those constellations that looks like two things. But anyway, so you got Jupiter, Mars, and Saturn all in a beautiful line gracing the south to south eastern sky these next dawns for the next you know month or two so check it out that sounds and, really great um, oh, you know i found another news story that's related to oh, okay, what we good, were good. talking about i thought it was interesting i'd bring it in here's a riddle for you what do you think has just topped the source of air pollution in the world's cities what do you think is is now topping cars as the worst oh the source of air pollution yeah what do you think has gone past vehicles now well, I mean, you know, one thing to say is power plants just because they, but, but, jeez, uh, no, no, let's see now. Tommy, you want to take a guess? I don't know. Let me think. More than cars? More than cars, believe it or oh, not. Oh, how about mopeds? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, no, that, vehicles, vehicles. Okay. So what's more than vehicles? 
Mm-hmm. Okay, give us I'll a give hint. I'll give you a, give hint. a hint. Okay, it's the same same uh, source. Uh, a lot of them are made from the same products that the, the, what's coming out of your tailpipe. Fossil fuels. Oh, a lot of them. These are, are made. products. Oh, plastics? No, plastics manufacture. All right, no. give up. So, the University uh, of Colorado at Boulder study that just came out this last week says chemical products, including um, pharmaceuticals, that are refined from petroleum. No, they're household cleaners, pesticides, paints, and perfumes. Amazing. You wouldn't think that just the um, gases coming off those things and the things themselves aerosolizing into little particles has caused more oh. pollution of the air than even mm. cars and other vehicles. But it's are you talking about in the manufacture of them from the fossil fuels, the emissions, or are you talking just the off-gassing from the finished products? Maybe it's both. It says lotions, paints, and other products contribute about as much to air pollution as the transportation sector does. This is according to NOAA's Chemical Sciences Division. And I don't know the answer to that question about whether it's the production of them or... I would assume most cities don't have, you know, production plants of paint. Although when I was in Virginia, the DuPont company was right there. Oh yeah, remember Where DuPont? Was that? Yeah. Front Royal. No. Yeah, somewhere around there, yeah, Northern yeah. Virginia, there was uh-huh. the big DuPont plant, and I always thought they're making paint there, hmm. and a lot of other smells <laughs> came off of it. So, just a little something to think about when you're spraying pesticides on your plants. Maybe you don't want to do that. We want to thank you for tuning in to Planet Watch for another week. We have a podcast that you can subscribe to, so you never miss one of our shows. PlanetWatchRadio.com, and by the way, that's the website where we try to keep up now with posting at least the latest shows, and uh, sooner or later we're going to get all however many of them we've done posted <laughs> still got to get some of the earlier ones on there uh, and of course zbsradio.com z as in zebra bsradio.com that one has all of them all the time I mean every, every show so uh, keep an eye on the sky this is Joe and uh, thanks to Rachel and Tommy and all present company we'll <laughs> great, see you next week great week bye bye this is Planet Watch